So we're at our, our next um, subject in our series, um, and I have no complaints whatsoever about the way David puts together the rotor for, the, um, for these talks. Um, but I'm just saying that it looks like I've drawn the short, the short straw, straw again um, with the subject that I've been asked to, to speak about. Last week we looked at one of my favourite parables, um, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's often known, or the lost son. And um, David was giving us some very interesting insights into how that parable really is about two lost sons. So if you weren't here last week, I would really encourage you to listen to it on sound uh, on sound uh, cloud but yeah no I, I i i have i haven't been given my favorite parable to talk about i've been given this other one in chapter 16. it's uh, a parable which seems to suggest that it's okay to be dishonest as long as we're clever about it and um, actually money can buy you happiness because you can use it to buy friends awesome um, but obviously, we wouldn't expect it to be either of those things, either of those things to be true. So, um, it's a difficult passage. So, let's try to make sense of it today. I'm going to read um, the first nine verses of Luke chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So, he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked a second, and how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, Jesus said, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So I'll stop there um, for now, because what follows, and it's all part of the passage that we, are, um, we're, we're, we plan to look at today, uh, but what follows um, the parable up to where I've read it is a uh, a variety of lessons which some think were not taught all at the same time. That Luke has compiled a variety of the Lord's teachings and recorded them here in his gospel because they are on a similar theme. So keep that in mind because um, if that's true, that would mean that every detail of the parable wouldn't necessarily correspond to all of the points which uh, follow. In other words, we don't need to fit every one of the teaching points in the second part of the passage. We don't have to fit them all into the meaning of the parable as we might, we might understand it. But we'll have a think a bit more about the interpretation. Let's just summarise, first of all, what the parable is. We've got this guy, 
and his job is to look after his employer's affairs and his, his estate. And he's been accused of mismanagement, and whether he was guilty of that or not, we don't know. Uh, whether it was um, deliberate dishonesty or just incompetence, uh, we don't know that um, either. All we know is that it became very clear to him that he was about to get the sack. So he goes to everyone who owed his employer uh, money and he allows them to change the paperwork on, on um, their debts to reduce the amount that they owed. And his thinking was that um, when he was out of work and he was, didn't think he had the right skill set to do any job that he thought that he would like to do, so he was thinking he was going to be in a real pickle, um, that, um, that when he was in that situation, all these people who he had helped, that they would be willing to help him and look after him when he, when he didn't have a job anymore. Now, his, job, his, his boss was probably furious at what this guy did, but he couldn't help but be impressed with how clever the move was. And in fact, I mean, we don't know this either, but uh, yeah, it's just quite possible that he never lost his job in the end when his boss realised what a genius he, did, he had. He thought, well, maybe I'll give him a different job to do, to do instead. We're, 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 we're not told. And as with all the parables, we don't know whether this is a real story or not, or whether the Lord just made it up to, to, make, his, to make his point. So on the face of it, this guy committed fraud, but instead of condemning it, the Lord Jesus seems to present it as worldly wisdom that we should, as Christians, imitate. So, what's going on? What does it, what does it really mean? I should say first that this is acknowledged to be a difficult passage. Um, there are a whole variety of different views um, about the possible meanings. There doesn't seem to be a single consensus about what this passage is, is, is really uh, about. So it is a, a difficult one, hence my little jokey comment at the beginning about David giving me all the hard ones to, <laughs> to do. Um, some commentators say that Jesus was equating the crisis that this um, manager was facing with the crisis which is facing this world because of the gospel. Because as we know, there are serious consequences for all of us who choose to follow Jesus. Jesus said that his disciples would experience hatred and opposition and all kinds of trouble at some point at least during their lives. So there are, there's a crisis even for those of us who choose to follow Jesus, but even more of a crisis in terms of the terrible consequences that face those who reject the gospel. The gospel brings crisis. Jesus said in that sense he'd not come to bring peace, but a sword. There's a crisis facing this world, despite it being in the context of the good news of the gospel. And it's suggested here um, by some commentators that Jesus is saying that people should prepare for what lies ahead with the same prudence and urgency as the man in the parable facing the sack. So that's one view that um, is out there. Other commentators um, go straight to the punchline in verse 9. Um, now, did I read verse 9? Did I stop? 
Yes, I did. I read, did read that. All of a sudden, I thought, did I read verse 9? So enjoyed the parable and its mystery. Um, I couldn't remember if I'd got, I'd got right to the end. So yeah, some commentators rely on that punchline in verse 9 to explain the whole meaning of the parable. That's what we normally do, isn't it, with a parable? It's usually the punchline at the end kind of makes, makes uh, sense of it all. Uh, and they say it's all about how we should use our worldly wealth to make friends. Really? Could, could that be true? Well, I think crucially with that interpretation, we have to understand who these friends might, might be in the context of what the Lord Jesus said. I mean, who are these friends who, when we've got no money left or money is no longer in, uh, important to us, would be in a position to welcome us into eternal dwellings? That seems a bit strange. It can't, can't be just, you know, people that we know in this life, surely, non-Christians. Non God was sometimes referred to in the plural. Actually, quite often by the Jews was referred to in the plural because you know, did, they didn't like to, to say his, his name out of reverence. Um, so some say that Jesus was using the word friends here actually to refer to the Godhead. In other words, that we should, the point of the parable is that we should use our wealth in a way which honours God, and if we please God in this life, then we can look forward to eternal rewards in the next life. And we know that is a, true, a truth in Scripture, so it's suggested that possibly we can hang it on this parable um, um, also. And another similar view to that is that the friends does include the Godhead, but it also includes all the people who may have been saved as a result of our selfless witness, as a result of us giving money to outreach, as a result of us using our resources to let our light shine, um, doing good works in our communities there, perhaps. Uh, the thought is, with this one, is that we could perhaps imagine that when we finally go to be with the Lord, that anyone that we have helped lead to the Lord might be among those, if they've gone to heaven before us, who are waiting there with the Lord to, to, welcome us, to welcome us home. Now, I think that's a lovely idea, but I can't find any of the scriptures which, which, uh, which really back that up. In fact, if we go to the likes of Thessalonians, we're told that in the rapture, we're all caught up together to be with the Lord. Although there is also that sense, and Paul talked about the dilemma he had about wanting to stay here, but also to go home and be with the Lord. There is also a sense that we believe that or think that people who have gone to sleep in Christ in some sense are with the Lord already. They're not just asleep waiting for the rapture. So we don't know. Um, so I just throw that one out there. I think it's a lovely thought, but um, I, I don't think it has an awful lot of uh, credibility. Um, the interpretation that I'm most inclined to go with, and actually this doesn't rule out any of the other um, options but it's it's the interpretation of the parable that suggests that the man wasn't being dishonest at all and if that's true that makes a lot more sense as to why the lord doesn't condemn it and why he the lord says that there is something in his behavior that we can imitate as as christians you see in jewish culture it was wrong to charge high rates of interest on loans to, uh, or, and debts to other Jews. Um, 
but it went on all the time. Penalistic rates of interest were, were often charged. And like today, people could get trapped in their debts with no hope of, of ever paying them off. And it wasn't just morally wrong, it was, it was also um, illegal. So it's suggested by some that the man, when the man reduced all of these debts, he simply adjusted the accounts for the illegal interest that shouldn't have been added to them in the first place. In other words, he used his position and the wealth that he had under his control to do the right thing. And he is referred to as a dishonest manager in, in, in verse 8, but perhaps that was just a bit of wordplay by the Lord Jesus uh, before he revealed the twist in the story. There actually, this apparently dishonest manager was someone to be commended for what he for what he did. And actually he was doubly commended, wasn't he? He's, he's, he's commended in the story by his employer uh, and he also seems to be commended by the Lord Jesus in verse 9 when the Lord Jesus appears to be saying that we should do, we should do likewise. Although self-interest was, was part of his motive, may, maybe the main part of his motive, and, uh, and pleasing God wasn't even a consideration for him, nevertheless, in worldly terms, he did a good work. Possibly. Okay, so we've got different interpretations of, um, of this. Let's, let's leave those interpretations just hanging for a moment and have a look at the teachings which follow. Because they are much more black and white. So as I say, the, the degree to which we can say that a particular point that's made in the passages that we're going, the verses we're going to read now definitely links to the, to, the, to, to, the, um, to the parable. I think that's harder to say, and some of, them, some of them seem to have nothing to do with the parable, really, apart from perhaps the theme of money uh, or honesty. Um, so it's, but, but, but as standalone teachings, they are much more black and white, and I think this is where perhaps more profitably we can take something um, home from us uh, with us today rather than just the idea that Ian just shared a whole load of possible ideas and said none of them really had, <laughs> had good credibility because that doesn't really leave us anywhere useful and we'd all be sorry that we bothered to, to, to stay for the ministry. So um, let's, look at the first, let, let's look at verses 10 to 12 first. <clears throat> whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy, if, and if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So I think the simple lesson in those few verses is that how we look after small things is an indication of how we look after bigger things. And if we can't be trustworthy with the little things, then how can we be, how can we be trusted with, with more? And I think that, I mean, that's a very simple point, um, isn't it? But I think that we should recognise that that principle applies quite widely in life. Um, clearly, we could say that it applies to money, and that's perhaps one of the common themes between this teaching and the parable. Um, and it can apply to other possessions as well. Um, 
But I think also it applies to our responsibilities, our duties, things that we do in life, whether it be in work or in our communities or in our families or, uh, and certainly in the, in the church environment, in our service for the Lord in that, in, in, in that context. These are areas where um, showing diligence and commitment in the smaller things must surely be a prerequisite be before being trusted with responsibilities in, in bigger things. And perhaps even we could extend it to spiritual gifts. It's an area that we, it's, there's a, there are different interpretations about spiritual gifts in scripture. Um, but there is a context that some gifts, although they're all important in terms of the team efforts, there are some gifts which have more impact and, require more, and, and have more responsibility and therefore require more commitment. And there are other gifts which, though valuable, do not. And uh, there is a sense of desiring um, the opportunity to serve the Lord in, in, in bigger ways. Um, and so perhaps if we apply this principle here, it's also saying that yeah, that's a noble aspiration, but we need to prove ourselves in the smaller things first. So, that's uh, a couple of verses. Um, let's look at the next one, verse 13. It says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, I used to have a job where I did serve two masters. In fact, I had to serve many masters, and they were all quite demanding, um, which is why they sent me on stakeholder management courses to learn how to do it properly, probably after I'd made such a mess of it at times. Um, but God isn't just a stakeholder in our lives, is he? He's not just another stakeholder. He demands and deserves absolute commitment, total commitment. But in contrast, money has a way of demanding total commitment also, doesn't it? The time spent in acquiring it and keeping it and enjoying it and worrying about the loss of it. These things can absorb more and more of our energies and, 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 and time. And when the Bible uses words like love to describe the relationship that we might possibly have with money, then we can see why it's a serious thing. We can see why the Bible says that it is a root of all kinds of evil and a source of discontent. 1 Timothy 6 and 10, Hebrews 13 verse 5. Now of course it's true that having wealth in itself is not condemned despite the risks which go with it and the key thing is how we use it the stewardship that verses 10 to 12 is talking about but we should be careful not to rely on that too quickly that's kind of you know you can just imagine the, uh, the, the, the wealthy rich person in his Rolls Royce thinking yeah but it's not it's you know it's not it's not about being rich it's about what you do with it you know and I you know I, I give many hundreds of pounds to the RSPCA and, 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 and whatnot um, so we should be careful, um, because if you look at verses 14 to 15, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this, and they sneered at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, 
But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The point is that the Pharisees, who, as I was saying a few weeks ago, in some ways were to be commended. I mean, I was saying a few weeks ago, I have a certain sympathy with the Pharisees, these blind guides who followed the blind guides who had gone before them. Somehow these people who were diligent and devout and dedicated their lives to the meaningless rule after rule, they, they lived and breathed it. And yet somehow they were totally wrong in their attitude, in their, in, in, in their motives. And, and, and part of all of that, these, these, these Pharisees, or many of them, had fallen into the trap of loving money and, and everything um, that went with it. We know that they, used to, they, they, they love to be admired for their piety. But you know, sometimes money can be quite a good tool if you want to be admired for your piety. Because no doubt they're generous donations to the temple. And there are other charitable projects and concerns which probably were quite well publicised. And they enjoyed, enjoyed that. that. That was just all part of this veneer that they presented to the people around them. You know, I've got money, but I, you know, I'm giving money to the poor, the temple. You know, I built this, this wonderful building over here that the poor people can use. And you know the kind of thing. And Jesus said that God could see right through that hypocrisy. So, there's quite a lot of stuff there. How can we apply these teachings in a, a useful way, in a, in, in a relevant way to, to our lives today? I've got a, just a few points I'd like to just suggest. So, number one, we should remember that the resources that we've been given in this life ultimately belong to God and that we should use our money and possessions and opportunities that might come through in all sorts of different ways including our positions in life we should use them in whatever way we can to do good. The second point and link to that is just thinking back to the parable whatever we might think of the manager's motives what he did may have had a tremendous impact on the people whose debts he, he reduced, especially if they were people trapped in the debt cycle. You know, he may have made a huge difference to their lives. So if we've been blessed with the ability to make a difference in people's lives, either through our wealth or position or other opportunities, then that's a, an awesome opportunity, isn't it? And we should ask God for the wisdom to to do it well, to use those opportunities well and those resources well. Thirdly, verses 10 to 11 remind us that God wants us to be totally honest, even in the smallest of things. So whether it's um, claiming expenses, if you ever have to do that, um, or submitting an insurance claim to areas which are notorious, for even good, decent people to embellish the paperwork at times. Um, so whether it's something like that, or whether you're selling something on eBay and you're trying to work out how to describe this decrepit, faulty piece of merchandise <laughs> in a way that's going to get people to buy it. You know, what a moral dilemma. You know, eBay has this, this category now called new other. 
and you go into there and it's meant to be something like new that doesn't have a box and people will say new other and you get to the description and it just says it looks like new, <laughs> it's like five years old, it's not too scratched, I'm calling it new. You know, it's a, maybe you might say it's a trivial little thing, but it's an example how in a small way we could find ourselves being dishonest. Whether you have to fill out a tax return, some of us have to, have to do that. Or, or what about just the occasion when you're walking out of shop and notice that you've been given too much change? In these and countless other little ways, we should always have complete integrity. And actually, we can extend it beyond that as well. Um, because I used the word diligence before as well. In the duties that we've been given in life, whether it's in, our, in the workplace or in other tasks that we're responsibility, responsible for, and certainly in our service in, in churches of God, integrity means diligence. It's doing everything as unto the Lord. No shortcuts, no half-heartedness, no lack of enthusiasm. It's doing everything as if the Lord himself has given us that task to do. Because actually, in a sense, he has. Fourthly, my fourth one, and um, I think lastly, it, the, the key lesson from verse 13 is that we should be very wary of the risk of money subtly taking God's place in our lives. It is subtle. Uh, don't think anyone suddenly makes a decision at some point in life, am I going to serve money or serve God? It's a subtle thing and that's the way the adversary has designed it to be. It's subtle. The questions or tests that we could possibly ask ourselves, that you could ask yourself, if you were ever worried, or even if you weren't worried, just to find out whether you should be worried about, about anything. Questions that you could ask yourselves are, do you think about it, money, um, or talk about it or worry about it often? Or do you allow career or investments or even the opportunity to earn a little bit of overtime um, get in the way of things that you know that God cares about? Or have you accumulated loans and credit card debts for things that you didn't really need? And stuff like that. They're the kind of questions that possibly we could ask ourselves just to get a check on whether money is finding a way into our lives more than it should do. But finally, if there is one overarching lesson that I would take from today's passage, it is the encouragement to be good, wise stewards um, and to use all that we have in one way or another for God's glory. Because if we do that, not only will we make the kind of difference in the world that God wants us to make, uh, and not only will we, will we be well pleasing to the Lord, but as a consequence of that, we can look forward to eternal reward. Not because we've earned it, because the Lord is just looking for any excuse to give it to us, because that's what he's like in all his grace. He wants to reward us, but he wants to see us living out the things that he wants to see in our day-to-day -day lives. So, a tricky passage. Um, some areas of uncertainty in terms of what the parable meant, at least. But I think the teaching points that came after it, that, as I say, may have come from different points of the Lord's ministry at different times, I think they are a little bit more 
um, between the eyes, aren't they? They're a bit more obvious, a bit more black and white. So perhaps we can take most of our challenge today and encouragement from those things. Let's pray.